you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had be content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say, when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great to be with you guys today as we continue our sermon series in the book of Joshua. If you've got a Bible handy, let me encourage you to go there. Feel free to keep your uh, party whistles going throughout the sermon at your favorite moment. That's a joke. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Uh, Grab your Bible. Let's go to Joshua chapter 7. As I was reflecting on today's chapter, my mind uh, immediately jumped to a moment uh, just after Christmas. Uh, It was a few days before New Year's. Uh, We had packed the car, packed the kids, uh, and we were heading down to the coast for uh, a week's holiday at Point Lonsdale. And uh, you know that moment where you kind of scan the house just to see that you haven't left anything important behind, like a toothbrush, a bag, a kid, you've got to check the house. We walk around, everything's fine, but then Ness looks up and she says, Guy, do you see those small bubbles on the ceiling above? I'm like, what small bubbles, right? I should say our ceilings at our place are quite high and my eyes are quite old and I couldn't quite see. And then she says, look right there near the light, there's these small bubbles. And sure enough, these small bubbles on the ceilings about the size of 20 cent piece. So next minute, uh, I've got the ladder out. I'm climbing up into the roof to try and work out what's causing these small bubbles to appear on our ceiling. There's only a few of them, but I'm keen to kind of work out what's going on here. And it's pitch black. I'm hunched over. 
We're trying to get to our holiday. I've got my iPhone torch light out looking. I'm going nowhere. And then I see it standing right before my eyes, uh, our evaporative air cooling unit. Uh, this thing was installed about 12 months ago, and uh, uh, I, I see it, and then what? I look down and I discover that this evaporative cooling unit is dripping water. Turns out that whenever we were turning this thing on, it was just a small leak that was coming from this evaporative cooling unit. So I look down and I see uh, water uh, on the beams in the roof. I see water on the insulation and I see a pool of water just resting on the ceiling roof. Right, and I'm all for like I would. It's a dream to have a, a pool at home, just not in our roof, right? And so I yell out to Vanessa. There's like a there's water everywhere. Go and grab some towels. And, and as she's scurrying to get some towels, this is what happens. <laughs> right? I mean, I literally look at it and all of a sudden the pressure of the water bursts on through. Uh, first day of holidays. Well done, Guy Mason and team. Uh, bursts on through, and it's like all on the floorboards. It's, um, uh, it's kind of wrecked the, the light fitting. Uh, this is damage. Like, like, thankfully, we have insurance, and, it, and it's all covered, but it's just this crazy amount of damage. And, and kind of what occurs to me as I'm you know, thinking about this now is that with all of this damage, right, all of the damage on the floors and to the roof and this huge hole in our ceiling that looks like something out of Stranger Things. It's all as a result of just one small leaking air conditioning unit, like one leak that was unnoticed by us. One small drip of water led to this huge amount of damage. And I hope you know where I'm going with this. Because when we reach today's text, we see that things for Joshua start to fall. The ceiling comes apart. Up until this point, man, we've been having a lot of fun in Joshua. Uh, we've, we've, We've rejoiced as they finally got news that they were leaving the wilderness. We rejoiced as they crossed the River Jordan. And, and last week, wow, we celebrated uh, as, they, as they took Jericho and this faith and there was a shout of praise that went out. This week, everything begins to fall apart. And for us, we need to be asking, uh, not, not just assessing the damage in this text, but asking why. What was the dripping water, the unnoticed damage? What what was going on there? And, and what can we learn for ourselves when it comes to our own life and our own faith that we need to be attentive to? If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in verse 1 now. Three insights to help us navigate this text together. Act 1, a hill not to die on. Verse 2, the writer says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, uh, which is near Beth Avon, east of Bethel, and said, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out I, and they returned to Joshua, saying, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for there are few. So about three thousand men went up to there from the people, and they fled. 
before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabaram and struck them at the descent. So 3,000 men are sent to the Battle of Ai. Now, Ai is a Canaanite city, uh, stood as a fortress at the ascent of the mountains. And so if Israel is going to enter into the fullness of God's promise and and, uh, and enjoy the fullness of the land, they not only needed to pass through and take Jericho, which kind of governed the lower regions, they needed to ascend the hill and take the city of Ai. And yet unlike Jericho, which ends in victory at the battle of Ai, Joshua faces a humiliating loss. 36 men are killed. Thousands flee the battle in fear. In a blink of an eye, in a blink of an eye, their greatest victory at Jericho is swallowed up by a crushing defeat. And this defeat not only pushes Israel back, but it sends God's people into a pit of despair. The writer says, And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. In the ancient world, the tearing of clothes was a public and and prophetic display of grief. Joshua cares for his men. Joshua cares for the people of Israel. Joshua cares for the Lord and his name, which has been defamed in this humiliating defeat. And did you notice the people's response? The writer says, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, by show of hands, who remembers where else we hear this phrase of hearts melting? Two hands. Okay, we're doing good. In chapter 2, Rahab the Canaanite says to the men of Israel, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, the writer says, When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts, what? Melted in fear. So what then does it mean when Joshua says the hearts of his people melted? It means that at the battle of Ai, the people not only lost ground, they lost courage. They lost strength. They lost their faith. And you know this because we have all experienced this. As you scan the film reel of your life, you can see moments where you were trying to take the hill. Moments where you had dreams of doing something great, 
of taking new ground, of reaching a new height. It could have been a sporting dream, the the promise of a great relationship. It could have been hope for your career. We all climb those hills hoping and dreaming and praying with great expectation. But isn't it true that life has a way of cutting you down and pushing you back? The life-giving job ends in restructure. The girl of your dreams dumps you for someone else. The marriage that started with so much adventure and creativity ends in boredom and bitterness. The great friendship and unity that you once know is pulled apart through pride and envy and jealousy. The great church that was thriving and enjoying God's presence is pulled apart through division, judgmentalism. And here's what I know you know, and that is that defeat hurts. Rejection stings. Failure discourages. And what do you do with that? What do you do if you find yourself pushed back into the valley of defeat? Joshua says, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs from their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Where does Joshua take his defeat? Where does he go? He goes to the Lord. Now, I know some people will read this prayer and and Christians could be a little bit uncomfortable by his line of questions to the Lord. We tend to prefer prayers that are wrapped up in nice, neat, pretty bows. This prayer is raw. It's laced with frustration and even anger. Now, is this kind of prayer that we we hear in Israel when they are grumbling and complaining to the Lord in the wilderness? Is it that kind of prayer? Or is this the more humble lament prayer that we read in leaders like David who came in surrender before the Lord? Uh, I don't know. And maybe that's because both elements are true. But here's what I do know from reading the Bible, and that is that God welcomes us, whether we are praising Him and rejoicing on top of the mountain or face down in the valley, God welcomes the full orchestra of human emotion. God wants you to be real. God is with you on top of the mountain, but He's with Joshua. He's with you. In the valley. And you'll notice for Joshua, it's clear in his prayer that he's trying to figure this out. Like, keep in mind the journey we've been on. I'm trusting the Lord. You said, I've got to obey your scriptures, and I'm doing that. And they went into the land, and then they did exactly as the Lord said, and they walked around the city, and God answered their prayer, and those walls came down. Everything's been going to plan. So, why did we lose here? 
What was the reason that we lost in battle? Why are my people now running scared and empty of any strength? Why? Did we become overconfident? Did we become self-reliant? What, what's happened here? How did something so good become so bad? Well, the Lord doesn't mess around. He says to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied, Joshua. And they've put among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Why does Israel lose in battle? Why did something so good fall apart? It's not because of their size or strength. It wasn't a lack of strategy. It was because of sin. They sinned. Remember what the Lord said to Joshua before they entered. Obey my word and you'll succeed. Dwell in the word, meditate it day and night. And don't just understand it intellectually, but live it, Joshua. And lead God's people into righteous, holy living. Do that, Joshua, and you'll succeed. Nothing to worry about. Doesn't matter how big the giants are, you'll succeed. But this is the wake-up call. Joshua, Israel have sinned. You want to know why you lost? You want to know why things fell apart? You want to know why there's blood in this valley? Israel have sinned. They've stolen from the treasury of the Lord. Uh, When God sent Israel into the land, he said, all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Right? So God had given Israel the land to enjoy, but the first fruits of that inheritance belong to God. Did God need silver and gold? No. (laughs) But this is about trust. This is about obedience. God doesn't give the land to Israel so that they could be filthy rich. God gives them the land to make them worshippers. To raise them up as a city on a hill that's a light to the other nations. But what happened? Someone touched what they shouldn't touch. Someone got greedy. So one by one, because Joshua doesn't know, he gets the tribes out and he gets the families one by one to work out where this sin is, what has caused the destruction. And he goes through the tribes, he goes through the families until he finds one man. His name? Achan. This leads to the second episode. Act two, trouble is not my middle name. Verse 18, and Joshua brought near his household man by man and Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. The name Achan Achan, uh, comes from a Hebrew word that means trouble. Anyone looking for baby names? Uh, 
Fun little moment a couple weeks ago, uh, I get up early, uh, go downstairs, and I notice that my youngest daughter, Lily, is watching TV. She snuck out of bed when she shouldn't sneak out of bed, and she's got the remote in her hand, and she's watching TV. Right? She knows it's wrong, but the lure of Peppa Pig is mighty. <laughs> Lily, you know you're not supposed to be up at this hour watching TV. Immediately, she covers her eyes and pouts. I say, Lily, I'll give you an option. You can turn the TV off right now, scurry back to bed. We won't talk about this ever again. Or there's trouble. What's it going to be, Lily? Turn the TV off, go to bed, or trouble? She looks at me, looks at the TV and says, trouble. (laughs) That's Aiken. His name means trouble, and he's got God's people into trouble. Joshua says to him, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Truly I have sinned. Achan knew exactly what he had done. He knew that stealing gold and silver was wrong. He knew that all of Israel was supposed to obey God's word. He knew that he wasn't supposed to go into the treasury, take gold and silver and keep it for himself. He knew it was wrong and yet he does it. Why? Why is it that we do what we know we should not do? It's because the desires of your heart are incredibly powerful. The desires of your heart are incredibly powerful. Like terrorists on a plane, they can storm the cockpit of your mind, take over your reasoning, and lead you to where you know you shouldn't go. It's why really smart people can do really dumb things. It's why, listen, we've all made stupid mistakes and we even look back on our former self and say, why did I do that? It's why telling people to simply follow your heart may be the single worst advice you can give anybody. It's good to be true to who you are. It's good to kind of lean in and get a sense of your own instincts from time to time. But listen, if I were to follow my heart when it came to every major decision in my life, if I were to follow my heart when it came to every relationship, every opportunity, every decision, every moment, I can tell you I would have crashed this plane 10 times over. Don't follow your heart, follow God. Aiken's head, I mean heart, sorry, head and heart, right? He sees it, dwells on it, he covets it, he takes it, leads him to sin. He says, this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, which is kind of Babylon attire, uh, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. Uh, if you're trying to do the maths here, 50 gold, 50 pieces of gold, 200 silver, what does this actually add up to? They say it's about an entire full-time salary for an entire year. It's about that much money on the street. 
In other words, he isn't just grabbing a few coins to cover next month's rent. The dude is looking to make it rain. And I want you to notice something here about the nature of greed. The nature of greed. Because listen, when God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them into the wilderness. And he's like, I'm going to provide for you and you're going to get manna from heaven. Like, just imagine you're amongst the people of God in that moment. You've been in slavery, chained to a rusty cell, and now you're out with the people of God, and God's dwelling in your midst, and manna from heaven is coming down. And you're enjoying it, and you're feasting. You're like, wow, God's providing. How good is God? Isn't God the best? Yeah, He's great. But then the Bible tells us in Numbers that they got tired of that, discouraged in the provision of God, and then they started uh, lusting after meat. That's the phrasing, lusting after meat. Now, I ain't got anything against wanting meat. I married a vegetarian. I'm a meatitarian. Nothing wrong with meat. But the Bible underscores the fact that they were lusting after meat. They had manna. They're now lusting after meat. Well, guess what? Now they're in the promised land, which we know is flowing with milk and honey. We know the fruit is huge and the food is great and everything's awesome. God's providing. And yet here's Achan wanting more. I got silver, but... Oh, I need more silver. I got clothes, but I need fancier clothes. I got gold, but I need more gold. Um, This is what makes greed so insidious. Greed is a bottomless pit. I got a house. I need a bigger house. I got a car. I need another car. I got three suits I want six more suits. Uh, John Rockefeller, American oil tycoon, some of you know, richest man, they say, in U.S. history. 1930s, 1930s, uh, his personal wealth was around $1.4 billion in the 1930s. Crazy rich. A reporter asked Rockefeller, how much money is enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Beware of the idol of more. Jesus was not against wealth. He never said money is evil, or it's evil to want nice things or have nice things. He just knows it's dangerous. I think it was Randy Alcorn who said that Jesus spoke about money more than heaven and hell combined. Because he knew how easy it is for, my, uh, for, for wealth and money and possessions to ascend a place of worship in our hearts. To drive us onto that treadmill of always needing more, always lusting after more. He knows how easy it is to distract you from what truly matters, namely your trust and reliance on God. I think of my own story, and I can see how money has been an area of temptation and struggle. I remember going to church in my early years, 15, 16 years of age, hearing the minister talk about money, hearing some call to give, and immediately put up the walls of Jericho. 
look the other way. I'm happy to read my Bible. I'm happy to go to church and be part of this thing and play guitar in the band. I can do that. But my heart was hardened to a call to give. Um, I think part of that was to do with my upbringing. Uh, I was raised uh, by my mum, and she at times worked two, three different jobs just to put food on the table. Uh, we used to get kind of uh, day-old bread delivered to our house every couple of weeks. Uh, even my mum and I would go to Coles sometimes, load up a trolley, and just quietly leave without paying. I think that's called stealing. But um, So growing up in that environment where money was always just felt out of reach and debt was ever-present, uh, money became a functional saviour. Uh, we look to money as what would get us out of the wilderness. If we had what they had, oh, that's the promised land. Uh, I was, got my first job when I was 13, and I was the first in my family to finish high school, and therefore the first person in my family to go to university. And my mom had like this wide-eyed look, like I was going to be the first to actually get a decent amount of money and take us out of this poverty. And she would have seen her face when I told her I was going to Bible college and going to become a minister. Money was, is, has been a towering idol. And so whenever the church spoke about money, my walls went up. On the surface, I'd have lots of good reasoning. Oh, you know, I'm not earning that much money now. When I earn much more money, then I could start to give. Or I'd look around, say there's a lot of other people here who seem to be doing well. They, I'm sure they could give. And I think everything's taken care of. So I, that's just the surface answer. But underneath there's an issue, what? Of trust. God can I trust that you will provide for me? God, can I trust that you care for me and that you want good for me? Can I trust, God, that what I have in you is infinitely better than anything in the world? You know, the Bible says, and I know this is a touchy topic, but maybe that's why we need to talk about it. The Bible says, do not, I uh, think this is in 2 Corinthians 4, feel free to check it out. The Bible says, the Lord is saying through the Apostle Paul, do not just excel in faith and knowledge, excel in the grace of giving. That's what you've got to excel. You want to be, excel in the grace of generosity in giving. Now, we know that most of us suck in this area. We know from the Scriptures, the Bible says, for New Testament Christians, that we are to give at least 10% as a starting place. We're to give at least 10% of what we receive from the Lord to His purpose, uh, gospel ministry, helping the church advance in the world, serving and caring for the poor. We're to give at least 10%, and yet research out of McCrindle in Australia shows, it, shows the average church giver, the average churchgoer gives, get this, not 10%, 0.7% of their income. And if you, have, if you earn over $150,000 a year, you actually give less with people giving only 0.6%. 
let's be honest for a moment. That money doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. And like Achan and his gold and silver, we are stealing from him. As disciples of Jesus, we are to give as God has given to us. And I can tell you that Jesus has given so much more than 0.6%. And just think for a moment with me, if the church were to excel in the grace of giving, if we were obedient in this area, just imagine the world-shaping impact, not just for City on a Hill, all churches, Christians united in their posture of generosity, the amount of churches we could plant, the amount of leaders who would be raised up, the way we could support people in need, the light we could shine in this city, that if we were not to be in the way of the world, which is, what can I get? What can I get? I need more. I need more. But actually, no, these people, they're characterized by what they can give, what they can give, what they can give. I know we're living in unstable times. But we follow Jesus who said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And we don't live by fear. We're called to be marked by faith. So let me encourage you to look to Jesus today. Consider your level of generosity. If you're not giving... Um, resolve today in your heart to be generous. Go to the Lord, pray, talk to Him about that. I know tons of people here give and are generous, and because of you, the gospel goes forward, and we thank the Lord for that. Let's be a church that excels in the grace of giving. And I want to also add that if you are struggling financially, if you're among this church and you struggle to put food on the table, don't let us know about that. We want to care. I don't want a church where people are struggling alone. I want to be a church where we can provide and care for one another. So share that with us. What does Achan do with the gold and silver he steals from the treasury? He says to Joshua, see... They are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. What does he do with his sin? What do we all do with our sin? Takes it into his house and buries it. He hides it. Um, We might call that secret sin, uh, but obviously with God there is no such thing as secret sin. One of the insights we get in this chapter, which is echoed all through the Bible, is that God not only knows our sin, but that everything done in darkness will be brought to light. Sin can't be hidden forever. You can't grab a shovel and bury it away and assume that's it. No one's going to know. God knows. He's there. God knows what is buried in your heart. God knows what is buried in the deepest parts of your life. And I know this is uncomfortable to hear, but whatever is in the dirt, He is going to unearth. Jesus said, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden 
that will not be made known. Now, Jesus is not being mean or vindictive here. He just wants you to be real with what's going on. And he wants to uproot sin in your life. Not to rob you of any joy, but to help you know the fullness of his joy. Right? Because sin, it doesn't just offend God, and that should be enough for us to steer clear. Sin doesn't just offend God. Ultimately, sin hurts us. Sin dehumanizes us. We aren't just punished for our sin. We are punished by our sin. We think we're stealing from others, but actually in sin, we're stealing from ourselves. Think about it. You were predestined to embody and embrace Christ's purity. His righteousness, His courage, His strength, His generosity. And yet, whenever you yield to sin, whenever you touch that which does not belong to you, you are feeding your shadow self. And if you continue to feed your shadow self, if you continue to feed the flesh, it will take over and consume you. In the end, you won't just be burying sin, you'll be burying yourself. And this leads to a third and final act, Act 3, the Valley of Accor. Did you see what the Lord says to Joshua about Achan's sin in verse 10? He says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Why is the Lord referring to Achan as they and them? I can tell you it's not because he's trying to be progressive. It's because God doesn't just see us as individuals, but as a collective and interconnected community. When one succeeds, we all succeed. When one sins, we all are brought down with that sin. Just as the sin of Adam brought guilt and sin to all man, so the sin of Achin brings guilt and sin to all Israel. And so the Lord says, unless you destroy that which was stolen from among you, I will be with you no more. You may want to underscore that because that may be just the most haunting thing in this whole text. Nothing is more crucial than the presence of God among his people. Nothing is more crucial to your work, to your family, to this church, than the presence of God among his people. Nothing should disturb God's people more than the loss of God himself from our midst. We are made for God. We depend upon God. God is our energy, our strength, our hope, our joy, and yet in sin, we are cut off. And there is a word for that separation in the Bible. It's the word hell. Peter Kreef says, the images of hell in Scripture are horrible, but they're only symbols. The thing symbolized is not less horrible than the symbols, but more. Spiritual fire is worse than material fire. Spiritual death is worse than physical death. The pain of loss, the loss of God, who is the source of all joy, is infinitely more horrible than any torture could ever be. 
All who know God and his joy understand that. Saints do not need to be threatened with fire, only with loss. Achan lost sight of the promise. He lost sight of the glory of God, and in so doing, he lost sight of his own soul. I know we live in a culture that tells us to embrace sin. It doesn't use that word, but I can tell you every single day you're being told to embrace sin. We celebrate sin. You must be different. We as a church must be different. In the face of temptation, you must be strong. You must be courageous. I mentioned last week about the revival going on at Asbury University. And, I, and I, we talked about the, the, the preacher who felt very ordinary about his sermon and went home discouraged, and yet God kind of used that talk and brought great encouragement. It's also helpful to know another part of that story, and that is that after the message, the 30 students that stayed behind gathered to continue in worship. And you know what happened? One bloke, one brave bloke among the 30 stepped forward and said, guys, I need to share something with you. Here's my sin that I've been trying to bury in the ground. Here's my sin that I've been holding on to. The guy confesses it to this group of 30 students, and those who were there said that the moment he stepped forward like that and shared his sin, the atmosphere changed. God used that moment to begin to renew and rebuild and move. I realize that some churches are too punitive when it comes to church discipline and sin and they're like sniffer dogs at the airport. It's the last thing I want for this church. But you know what would inspire me? You know what I would love to characterize City on a Hill Melbourne and our movement of churches? An honest and complete surrendering before God. A surrendering where we set our eyes on Jesus and are free to celebrate wins and success in those mountaintop moments, but we're also real with our sin and our struggle and the fight that we're all in. As the pastor of this church, let me be perfectly clear. There is grace for all who come to the feet of Jesus. There is grace for all who take their sin and repent of their sin, placing it at the feet of Jesus. I don't care what is in your rear view mirror. I don't care what sin you are wrestling with. I can tell you as a pastor of 15 years, there is nothing you're going to say that's going to take me by surprise. There is no sin too ghastly. Now there might be consequences for sins, but when it comes to the feet of Jesus, there is no sin that is too big. So I, I can't speak for all Christians, I will not condemn you. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came, why? To save it. And so if you're bringing your sin to Jesus, no matter how deep in the ground it is, he can forgive you. He can restore you. He can raise you up. What does that mean? It means that right now we can give up on the hiding. You can give up pretending. 
You don't need to come to church or your gospel community acting like everything is perfectly okay and you've got everything in its right place. You can come with dirt in your hands saying, this is the sin I've been struggling with this week. This is the sin that keeps luring me back. This is the sin I'm desperate for freedom from. Let me encourage you to be brave. Let me encourage you in your gospel community this week to be brave. Be the brave one who steps forward and says, guys, I want to confess this. And we don't confess sin just so we have like badges on us. No, no, we confess sin because we want to repent of our sin and put it to death. Be brave, city on a hill. Be brave. For Joshua and the people of God, the sin of Akin must be dealt with. As the band comes up, let's look at this closing scene. The writer says, And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys, and sheep and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Man, that's confronting. It's confronting because not only do we see the judgment that comes upon Achan, but because we know that this is actually the same judgment that we, outside of God's intervening grace, that we stand in. The Bible says there's no one righteous. The Bible knows we all have things that we've buried in our tent under the ground. And as we've seen throughout this series, which is so vivid in this chapter, the wages of sin is death. Outside of God's grace, we stand in God's judgment. But I do want, you know, as we finish here, I do want you to know that this valley of Accor need not be your end. There's a really beautiful promise in the book of Hosea, um, which is a story about God's relentless love for a disobedient people. They've told Israel time and time again to stop sinning. He says to them, I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. Amidst your sin, Israel, amidst your sin and the judgment and the wrath that rests upon you, I will take the valley of Accor and I will create a door of hope. I will redeem you. I will restore you. I'll come for you. You remember what Jesus said of himself in the Gospel of John? He says, I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. City on a hill, Jesus is our hope. 
In the midst of your sin, Jesus is our hope. In the midst of your fight, the judgment that your sin deserves, Jesus is the door of hope. You won't enter into that hope any other way. Jesus is the door of hope. This Easter, we're going to rejoice with men and women who are being baptized, declaring personally, prophetically, publicly their union in Christ, entering into His death, rising up in life. If you've not yet given your life to Jesus, the call today is repent, believe, be baptized. The door is wide open. So don't leave today without stepping on through. And for those of us who are in Christ, let us lean again into the grace of our Savior. We're going to sing now, so I invite you to stand. But as we do this, let's do it. Confessing our sin and confessing the glory of the grace that we have in Jesus. Our Lord loves you and longs for you to walk in newness of life that is yours. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.